Hello and welcome to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. On this episode, I'm going to be speaking to Helen Thompson, author of Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. We are in the green room of the Palmerston in East Dulwich. And by we, I mean myself and Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge and author of a new book titled Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, Helen Thompson. Helen, it's lovely to have you back on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Jack, to be back again. You are the first repeat guest on the series. I'm honoured. <laughs> but that's not least because when we last spoke, you were a commentator as well as a professor and you'd appeared on podcasts in the past, but you had not yet authored a book quite like this. And so uh, I guess when we were talking in 2019, it was already germinating in some sense, because it seemed like a lot of the things we were talking about then uh, reappear in this book. How long have you been thinking about this book in one form or other before you knew that you were ready to write it? I think I had some, let's call them stray thoughts about it in the second half of 2017. But my commitments in Cambridge meant that there was no possibility of me having any period of academic leave, the kind that's necessary to to write a book. Um, So they just kind of stayed thoughts that I was accumulating. And then in the summer of 2018, I started to think more seriously about what a book would be because I knew that for the academic year for 2019-2020 that I would have the whole year off as academic leave. And... I had this idea of writing something which which was actually even more ambitious than Disorder because there was going to be a fourth part to it about the relationship between culture and civilizational ideas and the, the territorial formation of states, particularly in Europe, but not only in Europe. And what I decided to do was to write a long essay. So I spent the summer of 2018 writing an essay that turned out about 35,000 words where... I worked out what I thought was the gist of the argument for the four parts as it then was. I didn't try to write a really try try to write a conclusion to it. Then during the course of 2018 um, discussions with my agent and the eventual editor Luciana decided that the fourth part was going to make things far too complicated. And I started then, having got the contract, writing it properly in the summer of 2019, by which point I'd understood that the geopolitical story, at least, was going to be a bit more complicated than I'd initially um, imagined, partly because I'd spent some of the time during the course of 2018 learning more about the geopolitics of gas than I did when I first had the idea for the book. And so you were already writing this book when we spoke last. I think it was September 2019. I I seriously started that September because although I was doing some some work in the first parts of the summer, it was uh, interrupted for um, various reasons. 
What's been so refreshing and challenging for someone like myself about this book is that it does away with the comfortable narrative that all political history is based on a clash of ideas. And in fact, you force the reader to get to grips with the fact that so much change is actually rooted in the material facts of politics, energy, energy security. But before we get on to that, I actually just wanted to interrogate the title of the book, because you started our last conversation talking about a Dickens novel. And here he is again, stowed away in the subtitle of this book, Hard Times in the 21st Century. And you have an excerpt of Hard Times and A Tale of Two Cities in there as well. Are these just respectful nods to Dickens that you like to make? Or has he influenced this book in a more profound way? This is quite a complicated question. I originally wanted to call the book Hard Times, um, or Hard Times in the 21st Century. And so the Dickens nod was quite central. Um, I think it came partly because either I can think of titles very quickly or I can't think of them at all. And this appealed to me as both something that um, made sense in to me in terms of my relationship with Dickens in that Hard Times was the book that put me off Dickens for like 15 years. And so because obviously I I was wanting to argue that we were living through an era of hard times, it was kind of like a reminder to myself in some sense of how wrong one could be about things. And it was only, I think it was probably only in 2019 or perhaps no, 2018 actually, that I went back to to reading um, Hard Times because although that I'd spent a lot of time reading the Dickens novels between 2004 um, and then I'd deliberately not gone back to Hard Times because I kind of blamed it for the pleasures that I'd missed out on for so long, great expectations aside. And and then, though, the more that I sort of... I really read it, I think, again um, during the course of writing the book and the more that it occurred to me that actually it's quite a profound meditation on the beginnings of coal-fueled industrial civilization. I think it's fair to say, I've written a piece about this quite recently, that it's Dickens' one dystopian novel, um, and at the heart of the dystopia, I think, is, is coal. And given that I was intending from the start to finish the book with climate change and the energy transition though I hadn't quite seen how to do it I think when I first actually started um, writing that idea that Dickens was writing this book which he was calling Hard Times as this fossil fuel energy civilization was taking off and that we were on the precipice of trying to leave it behind and that this was an incredibly difficult thing to do including in relation to consequences of fossil fuel energy civilization that idea the symmetry of that um appealed to me let's start at the beginning then there are various points we can start is it fair to start in 1956 the Suez Canal crisis the reason why you can go backwards from it 1956 is also why you can go forwards from it and let we just start in, in the consequences rather than the actual crisis itself it would be the West European turn to Soviet energy. And if you go backwards from it, you can then see that actually it's a relatively short interlude, um, which is the years after the Second World War through to 1956 when Soviet energy is taboo. 
So if you look at the Second World War period, actually, before Hitler turns on the, the Soviet Union, declares war on the, on, on the Soviet Union, then the, so, the Nazi war effort is dependent upon Soviet oil. That's sort of enshrined into the Nazi Soviet um, pact. Weimar Germany had an energy relationship with the Soviet Union. France and indeed Britain, actually, in the 1930s as well, were taking Soviet um, oil um, imports. So you have a period of taboo, which is the first decade or so of the Cold War, and then the European, West European governments, I should say, bring that to an end. I mean, there's some movement from the Italians before that, but it's really at the company level rather than at the state level. The, the West Europeans bring that to an end because when the British and the French have acted as they understand it entirely as they're supposed to understand in the energy logic of the post-Second World War world, Eisenhower said, no, I don't want you acting like that. that you're acting like imperial powers and don't you understand the world has moved on and this is the age of um, Arab nationalism and you're embarrassing us and pulls the plug on the... Did, did he in fact say, we are the Roman Empire, you are ancient Greece? I don't know about that. But the, the thing from the British point of view is, is that the British and the French are doing what they're supposed to do, particularly the British, because the American position uh, by 1947 had been, not only do we not want you to import Soviet oil, we don't want you importing oil from the Western Hemisphere either because we're sufficiently worried about long-term supply. We kind of want that for ourselves. And that means that you're going to import oil from the Middle East and we're not willing to be the military power in the Middle East that is going to protect your energy interests in that region. So the ones who are going to stay there are the British and the British are supposed to act like an imperial power. As a guarantor. As a guarantor. And then when Britain does act like an imperial power with France and Israel, Eisenhower says, we don't want you acting like an imperial power. Don't you understand the world's moved on and we don't live in the age of empire any longer. And by the way, we've got enough financial pressure to bring you to heel and ensure that you can't carry on with your military. But we don't live in the age of empire at the same time, they're <laughs> yes. saying. Yeah, okay. So from the point of view of the, the West Europeans, particularly... Um, France and I would say even more so um, West Germany, this is an absolute like existential crisis. I mean, the British have still got a position in the, in, in the Gulf and they're still in a strong position in relation to Kuwait and they're still able to import um, oil from those companies producing um, in, in Kuwait in particular, paying in sterling, which is a big um, advantage. The French have got hopes um, about Algerian oil because 1956 was the year in which gas was discovered in Algeria. They see uh, an Algeria, which is still a French colony, obviously, at that point, an Algeria that's into the European economic community that's agreed the next year. Then that is a way for the French that all of the European community can buy Algerian um, oil and that becomes the... Um, alternative, but, but that idea isn't entirely successful in no, practice. it's not, because obviously by 1962, the Algerians have got their independence, though de Gaulle ensured that French energy interests were quite well protected and, until the nationalisation a decade or so um, later. But from the West German point of view, they don't have the Kuwait option, and Algeria is not a French colony, they don't have an equivalent of, of a colony. Uh, and so the, the, the Soviet option makes a great deal of sense from their point of view, and particularly because Khrushchev regards it as essential for the future of the Soviet economy to be able to develop an export capacity, that suits the Soviets very well as well, or suits Khrushchev anyway very well. 
I think I said earlier before we started this conversation that Disorder could have been three books, except you wouldn't be able to tie it together in the conclusion that you do. What takes us to the next big historical shift? Is it to jump to the 1970s? Yeah, I mean, there are some crises, I would say, along the way and some fault lines that become evident, including essentially another Suez Canal crisis in 1967. But the crucial watersheds, I think on a number of fronts then come in the in the 70s and they all interact with each other I would say so the first one I think and perhaps this is the the best way in is the fact that in 1970 US oil production peaked it would not reach the same height until the latter part of the shale boom in the 2010s when it actually did go higher and that meant that a seismic shock was hitting both the geopolitical world and the world economy and that was that the world's largest oil consumer the United States um, was about or was on a trajectory to become the world's largest oil importer so a country that had been largely not entirely energy independent was now having a foreign energy dependency problem and an acute one um, at that And that meant that the United States was now going to have a a direct interest for itself in importing oil from the Middle East. Meanwhile, pretty much as that was happening, the British were pulling out from the Middle East. The financial costs of the commitment and the pressure that it put on sterling as a currency had become too much. So in 1967, or was either 1967 or early 1968, Howard Wilson's government had announced that Britain would withdraw from east of Suez and did that in 1971. So at this point, just as the United States was going to become more dependent on the Middle East, there is no Western guarantor of Western energy security in the Middle East. And since the United States was embroiled in the Vietnam War, the United States was in no position to take over the military commitment from Britain. And that meant that Western energy security in the Middle East would depend through the 70s until the very end of it on Saudi Arabia and Iran while the Shah was still in power in Iran and that wasn't obviously something that was um, likely to prove particularly stable even in its own terms given that Iran and Saudi Arabia were regional rivals and in the context I think in which that change on the energy side was taking place the pressures on the Bretton Woods monetary and financial system were growing and growing. Now, I think that even without these shocks, there would have been a problem because the rise, the growth of the euro-dollar system sort of uh, in London, this offshore banking in London, was undermining the fixed exchange rate system that was at the heart of um, Bretton Woods and undermining the capital controls that European governments in particular um, used. But what really changed things, or the way in which those, the, the energy dynamic if we, and the monetary dynamic came together, was the fact that the Bread and Woods monetary system was created in a world in which the United States had a large trade surplus. And now the United States was going to be moving into a world in which it was going to have a, ultimately a large trade deficit, a lot of which would be about imported um, oil. 
the next stop on this tour of the book will have to go to the economic and monetary history that you've just started on there and the consequences of that new settlement. But the fish and chips have just arrived and it's just reminded me to ask why you chose the Palmerston. Yeah, well, actually, I haven't been here for more than 10 years. But in the 2000s, I used to like coming here. And I was thinking as I was walking from Hearn Hill, why that stopped. Um, and I think it's because gastropubs appeared in Hearn Hill. <laughs> when I was first there, there, there was an absence of them, but they were appearing on, on Lordship Lane in the late 90s and the early um, 2000s. And when you suggested very kindly as having another conversation, I thought to myself, it's a long time since I've been to the Palmerston. So let's just go back to the dismantling of Bretton Woods. What does that do to monetary systems and economies? And in particular, how does it take us from the 1970s through to the boom of the 80s, the close of the century optimism of the 90s, and then the inevitable crash of the late 2000s? This is, a, I think, um, quite, in a way, tricky story to relate because as we go through the 70s, obviously the problem of energy inflation and exchange rate instability mount. So if the beginning of the 70s, the middle of the 70s are tough in a way, the end of the 70s are even tougher. And I would say then that goes into the very first part of the of the 1980s. And if you take Mrs. Thatcher's government you know, in Britain, uh, it comes in determined to prioritise reducing inflation, but actually for the first at least a year of it, it actually makes the inflation problem literally twice as bad as it was um, previously. So I think that Western governments and Western central banks, because the Fed was deciding American monetary policy and the Bundesbank was deciding German, West German um, monetary um, policy, don't really find a monetary way out of the difficulties that the 70s has thrown up. And what really saves um, Western economies, I think, is the moment or the point in which oil prices finally start to fall when the oil price shocks are over. And that's dependent upon new supply coming. And quite very usefully from Western economies' perspective, that new supply is coming from the North Sea and it's coming from Alaska and it's coming to some extent from Mexico. So this, these are less problematic point parts of the world quite obviously for western democracies in the case of north sea and um um alaskan production and i i think that that period then from let's say from the mid 80s through you could argue all the way to the early 2000s when on the economic side conditions are relatively benign with a big caveat that i'm going to come to in a, in a moment that that can be explained as an era of largely low oil prices. There were some spikes like around the, the first Gulf War, for um, instance, but it's as much as anything, I think, an energy interlude. Mm. The caveat is the difficulties that the European Union countries have around currency relations with each other, and particularly the relationship between the Deutschmark, German currency, and, and everybody else, essentially. Uh, and there's very considerable exchange rate instability in the European Union in 1992-1993. For a while, it looks like that's going to derail the Monetary Union project and that there won't be a euro. Uh, and then in the latter part of, 
of the decade, the Euro project gets sort of itself back together again with some caveats, though, that what the, the Germans had intended as being a relatively small monetary union that wouldn't have included, say, the Southern European countries becomes a, a large European monetary union where the exclusions are Britain, Denmark and, and Sweden. And so we end up with a, a Eurozone that's not really, in some sense, what anybody intended and there are various fault lines that that run through that that will then re-emerge once the shock happens in 2008 and I think what's striking about that side of things is there's just a, a presumption as it's all happening from the late 90s through to 2007 because it all crashes in first time in August 2007 that somehow risk's been eliminated. Right, and the it, irrational exuberance. Exactly, and that gets Greenspan. allied to yeah. Greenspan's, of, oh, we've, we've sold boom and bust, you know, we don't really have recessions any longer. Um, but the reason you can say something like that is is because the major recessions of the post-war period have got an oil price hike before them, and that's what's missing. So that's why you can say there's kind of like no boom and bust. It's not that the technical the monetary technocrats have solved everything any more than it is that the mathematical modelers have eliminated risk. So oil is always there, just seeped into everything. Yeah, and I think that the the, the point in which, in the build-up to 2007, um, the, the two, all, all the stories start coming back together again is when, in the face of um, China's rising oil demand and the effective stagnation from 2005 of oil production oil prices really start um, rising and the central bankers really start worrying about energy inflation even though it's not really materializing in overall inflation they've got their heads back actually into 19 into the 1970s and so they start raising interest rates and that has a set of knock-on consequences that ultimately ties the oil issue to what's going on in the American housing market with subprime mortgages to what's going on in bank funding markets where mortgage-backed securities are being used as collateral to the point in August of 2007 when the money markets in which banks borrow freeze. Uh, And then we're into the set of events that we come to call the 2008 um, financial um, crash. And all then, then the assumptions that have taken hold um, during the interlude, really, really come apart. What is it about this energy security story that influences the 2010s so that we get Brexit and Trump? Well, I think there's two diff- very different things here. I think if we take Brexit first, one of the fundamental causes of Brexit, I think, though it's far from the only cause, is the ways in which the United Kingdom's position as a member of the single market and a non-member of the Eurozone while possessing the offshore centre of, financial centre of the Eurozone in London, that that unravels under the conditions of the Eurozone um, crisis. Uh, And one of the ways in which it unravels is on the, the freedom of movement side, because from some point in really late 2011, early 2012, we see a, a divergence Um, a macroeconomic divergence between the Eurozone and the United Kingdom. So until that point, um, the UK recovery from the crash has been worse than the major Eurozone countries. And then the tide turns in in the favour of the UK in terms of growth from about 2012. And if we say, well, why did that come about? I think fairly 
you know, near the top of the list is because when oil prices went back over $100 a barrel again in 2011, that the European Central Bank responded to that by raising interest rates. It said we have to have a monetary response to energy inflation because it will turn into overall inflation. And even though British inflation was actually higher than in the Eurozone, quite a bit higher, actually, the Bank of England followed the Federal Reserve Board in saying, we're not going to do that. We're going to let inflation take the strain. And so didn't raise interest rates. And that's when the macroeconomic divergence starts. And then once that's taken place, the macroeconomic divergence taking place, you've got a, a situation where you have growth and higher levels of employment in the UK, particularly compared to the Southern European economies. You have migration from Southern Europe, which has not never been particularly high into the UK. It's been more Eastern Europe. Uh, and lo and behold, you know, in UK politics, you've got the rise of UKIP. You've got politicians from actually the Conservative Party, not least David Cameron himself, saying we've got to do something about freedom of movement. This is really electorally problematic for the Conservative Party. It's undermining democratic consent to membership of the European Union because freedom of movement being entrenched in the treaties means there's nothing that we can do um, about it. Obviously, the fact that the Conservatives have a migration target as part of the coalition government, I should say, makes it even more hard for them because they've then got a target that they can't possibly succeed at so that's the point where i think you can say look it doesn't look like oil prices and brexit have got anything to do with each other but if you like follow through the story of how the pressure points for cameron are created then we can see i think there is a there is a um relationship the thing about the trump story is the issue he was able to use so effectively was the mexican border and unauthorized migration over the Mexican border. And he was able to tie that to a whole set of other issues, including campaign finance and donor-driven politics. Um, And Trump was able to use that issue of unauthorized migration and the Mexican border to say essentially that the American, as he presented it, was like oligarchic class doesn't care about ordinary voters. And he was obviously also able to use the issue to make some fairly, you know, crude nativist attacks on American citizens. And I think that we can't really understand how he was able to do that unless we go back to the 1965 Immigration Act in the US and the way in which it changed the patterns of migration into the United States and the way in which before that it had been essentially very ethnically restrictive in just encouraging Europeans to come to the United States. And this was a change and it came at the same time or the consequences and the way it was legislated for also increased unauthorised migration into the United States and turned the Mexican border into an issue. We haven't even talked about China yet. (laughs) Authoritarian governments such as China and China in particular have the unique ability to make quick decisions and make them at scale uninhibited but they tend to be at a stage of development that still requires an awful lot of fossil fuel use western liberal democracies don't have that same problem but they are hampered by democratic processes that derail and undermine the decisions that need to be made is there any way of saying that one has a greater chance of reaching that transition more successfully china definitely has certain advantages where the um, green energy transition is concerned and I would say they come though 
not from its politics, but from the structure and nature of its economy and the fact um, that it has established for itself such a considerable advantage, really huge advantage in, in a number of ways, not least, say, in the manufacturing of solar panels and also the supply chains around the extraction of metals and production use of metals and rare earth metals in particular and that where rare earth metals have been concerned that China's actually been strategic about this since like the 1950s not just sort of in the period in which we're talking about um, green energy transition so I think it's obvious or relatively obvious anyway that there is a fear in Washington in particular that China has got ahead in green energy and if they take seriously the idea and I think that those closest to power do take this quite seriously that in the geopolitical world that energy power is consequential then that would worry you geopolitically and I I think you can see that in some of the things that Biden's actually said during the time in which he's been president and I think that's part of the fear of China in Washington going back to Xi Jinping's made in China 2025 strategy that was articulated in 2015 and I think actually that is the context really in which there was such a a shift in or such a shift in the bipartisan consensus in US Congress about China policy that Trump was really the symptom of that in the end rather than actually the cause of it even though lots of people in the Senate might not have liked the fact he was conducting a trade war over Twitter really disagree with what he was doing and they certainly didn't disagree with the technology war um, aspect. Where I think I'm less convinced than some perhaps is this idea that China has advantages because it's authoritarian over the democracies. Actually, the central issue here is energy consumption Um, and I'm not convinced that actually it's harder to persuade people in democracies to re- to constrain their energy consumption than it is in authoritarian states. I'm not saying it's easier either. I'm just saying I'm not really sure it makes any difference. Given that in the UK at the moment there are rumblings of an attempt by the usual suspects to try to push the country to yet another referendum on net zero, why not? I, mean, I, I just can't see Farage having anything like the same success in pushing for a referendum on net zero that he had on the European Union. I mean, aside from anything else, there was a, a history to referendums on EU treaties and actually on EU membership, including for Britain going back to 1975. And I think there's a number of reasons within the UK constitutional setup where it's quite hard to avoid the conclusion that referendums are necessary to legitimate constitutional change. And whilst I was of the view, I know some people weren't, that you could ask a binary question in a referendum about whether the United Kingdom could leave the European Union, I'm not sure what kind of question in a binary fashion you can concoct out of net zero. I mean, sure, you can say, okay, we're for it or against it. Whether you're for it, it's actually much more consequential as how you think we're going to get there. I feel like we've ended this conversation where we ended the last one. What Western nations are prepared to sacrifice for stability? If it is the case that we need to use less energy, what practical examples are realistic in terms of what that would mean for ordinary citizens and voters, given that, again, there will be losers in this, and that losers in elections and political decisions tend to take this less and less well. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously there, there were going to be significant issues about uh, losers' consent. You could see it in the Gilets Jaunes. I think one of the things that's interesting as a result of the war is that this question of asking citizens to reduce their energy consumption is already coming out. Uh, I noticed before I came out today there was a story on the BBC News front page about discussions between the European Union and the International Energy Agency about what message could be given to European Union citizens about how to reduce energy. And and it was all being framed around this will save lives in Ukraine because this will allow us to escape from um, or at least reduce Russian energy um, dependency. And uh, what strikes me is the way in which the war has really allowed those kind of arguments to be made in a way in which, if we go back to last autumn, when energy was, for price reasons, very much coming to the fore, you know, European, Europe in particular was experiencing an immense gas shock, I'd say, in scale of increase of prices, actually bigger than what went on with oil in the middle of the, the 2000s. And nobody was really making those kind of arguments. They didn't think that those arguments can be made. Now, I think as soon as you start looking at the specifics of this, particularly the, oh, work at home for three days a week, that immediately raises the question, obviously, well, who can work at home for three days a week? And people doing certain kinds of physical jobs that on which the whole economy depends and whole certain services depend, as we saw during the, the pandemic, that that's a whole other that's a whole other. Um, proposition and I don't think there's any avoidance in net zero politics of uh, who is using energy um, and that will be like democratically difficult but I still think it's a better place for us to be that energy consumption can be debated in the democratic political space than we were even six months ago. I think the really hard questions about this are probably to do with electric vehicles and whether actually it's at all plausible to think that there can be electric vehicle mass ownership in the way in which there's been mass car ownership. And if basically electric vehicles are going to be for the affluent and everybody else is supposed to make do with public transport, I think that's very tricky politics. Even if mass ownership were possible, do you think that in itself would be sustainable? This raises some really important and interesting questions because at the moment... Everything that's manufactured on the green energy side, the inputs for that manufacturing depend on fossil fuel energy. So uh, one of the consequences of fossil fuel energy becoming significantly more expensive as a result of the war, um, prior to that what happened in gas markets in particular in the autumn, is that that makes green energy transition more expensive too. The inputs for things as they stand at, at, at the moment um, have um, gone up and then there's the metals question and the question of like well how realistic is it for there to be the scale of metal extraction and production that would be necessary to bring about net zero 2050 in a way which essentially like replicated how everything is now but with a different a largely different energy base. The things that I read would suggest, shall we just say, there, there will be constraints. And I think that this does raise some pretty important questions because we have to think about, well, when do we, in our collective life, want to face those constraints? Do we want to get so far and then realise 
that is all being too optimistic do we want to try and face those constraints now and try and make decisions about what's plausible and realistic on the basis of putting those constraints pretty close to the front of our decision making and I think the difficulty of doing the second is that in order for the technological breakthroughs that are necessary to happen that a certain kind of optimism is necessary including a belief that there will be markets uh, and if you just go straight into the let's be realistic about constraints and let's take a pessimistic view of what might be plausible in the in the future that that actually does in itself become an impediment to succeeding with the energy transition so it's always i think a question of like how do we balance these things how do we try and see everything at the same time and assess all the risks said by somebody who is incredibly good at seeing everything at the same time and assessing all the risks i'd like to thank you very much again helen thompson for writing this book i recommend it to anybody who is trying to work out how we got to be where we are by avoiding the cliches and really getting deep into all of the moving parts thanks very much and thanks very much for dinner jack it's been a great conversation Thank you.